Well, good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, I have the privilege of uh, opening up God's Word and talking about a habit with you this morning. If you are new, as Ray just said, we're in a teaching series exploring uh, the idea of establishing certain habits, good ones, that can help shape our spiritual lives and deepen our walk with God. In case you missed the previous two weeks, we define spiritual habits as activities choose to engage in that repeatedly bring us back to God and facilitate our own spiritual growth. These habits are not uh, meritorious. They're not religious things that we do to impress God or earn His favor. These habits are not intended to demonstrate personal piety or to be used to measure my spirituality against your spirituality. They're not meant to foster an arrogance or burdensome or to inflict guilt or a sense of inadequacy if and when we fail to do them. They're simply meant to help us engage with God by intentionally putting us in a place where we can be with Him, where we can hear from Him and receive from Him all that He has for our lives. Last week, Ray talked about two spiritual habits that often get linked together, prayer and fasting. And I so appreciated the ability to unpack those two things because I think often they are misunderstood or overcomplicated. They're intimidating concepts to think about. This week, we're going to look at another habit, one that I think may be the most important habit of them all. And I don't say that because it's the habit that I get to do or because it's some way superior to the other habits. But I say that because if we develop this one, the rest of them become much easier. So today we're going to talk about the habit of simplicity. I personally crave simple. I don't know about you or where you stand on the whole notion of simplicity, but I crave simple design. I like simple art. I like simple things. I long for a simpler life. In fact, I think most of us crave simple. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you said, I wish parenting was more complex, right? Or when was the last time you were at your job and you said, I wish my job was just a little bit more chaotic. We don't say things like that, do we? No, we long for the simple. I'm going to assert that I believe that's true because I believe God designed us to crave simple. I believe God designed us to be simple creatures, to have simple relationships, I mean, think about it. He designed life in the Garden of Eden and its relationship to Adam and Eve to be a simple one, made more complex by Adam and Eve's decisions. The things he challenges his people in the Old Testament to do are relatively simple tasks made complex by people. The New Testament calls us to a childlike or a simple faith. But we as humans express a great deal of energy and resources to make life and faith and relationships more complex than they need to be. Just the very notion of being born anew is a call back to the simple. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29 puts it this way, This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. God literally made us to be upright, to be simple, to have of but a few tasks, but we go about the business of overcomplicating things with our own schemes. I think we do this because we don't trust the simple. Simple isn't glamorous. 
But I genuinely believe that simple equals healthy and complex equals unhealthy. The idea of developing the spiritual habit of simplicity is, quite frankly, it's just it's not that simple. We live in a hyper-complex culture, and as a result, we are more burned out, strung out, put out, stressed out than any other generation to come before us. And as a general rule, life is tired. We feel often beat down or discouraged. And those words are in direct conflict with the hope, with the joy, with the life that God calls us to lead. And so we ask ourselves, how do we change this? How do we simplify our lives? How do we go about the business of developing a habit of simplicity? To ensure that nothing comes in between our relationship with God and the life of extreme joy He desires for each of us. So this morning I want to look at a very familiar but I think underappreciated passage of Scripture that will, I hope, give us some new insight into simplifying our lives. But before we do that, I'd like to pray. So will you bow with me and let's pray together. Father, as we pause this morning, we give you great thanks. And God, as we dive into the complexities of our world, the complexities of our life, we ask that you would give us the strength and the courage to simplify. To focus and identify on the things that are most important. Give us the courage and the strength to do those things. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So as we dive into this habit, let me first say I am at best this morning a student teacher on this topic. I don't want you to leave here thinking in any way that I have this particular habit or quite frankly any of the other habits in this series down because I simply do not. In fact, on some level, I think this series is maybe even written for me because I need to develop better spiritual habits as I grow into the best dad, the best husband, the best pastor, and the most genuine follower of Jesus Christ that I can possibly be. Unfortunately, I'm not alone because the Bible references this notion of the simple life over and over again, but never more succinctly than in one particular story found in the book of Luke. It's a story involving two of Jesus' closest friends, Mary and Martha. During Jesus' time on earth, he had hundreds of followers, but only a few that made it into the inner circle of his friends. As far as I can tell in Scripture, there was Peter, James, and John, and then Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are siblings. They've got a house in the suburbs of Jerusalem where when things got too crazy for Jesus, he would find his way to their home for a place of rest. As you can imagine, as Jesus' ministry continued to develop, more and more people wanted more and more from him. They wanted more miracles. They wanted more healings. They wanted more teaching. They wanted more of everything that Jesus had to offer for them. I don't know uh, if you have ever had an, a week or a month or a season in your life where it just felt like everybody wanted a piece of you. Everybody wanted something from you. It is an exhausting way to live. And that is where we find Jesus in this moment. So let's look at Luke chapter 10. If you, if you have a Bible, open it to Luke chapter 10. If you don't, there's some there in the chair. It's in the New Testament's Matthew, Mark, Luke. And then find chapter 10 and that's where we'll be. 
Starting at verse 38, it says this, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. In fact, it's just one thing. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You see, Jesus is making an unplanned visit to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus has been busy doing the work of ministry, and he wants to take a break. He wants to escape from the demands of his life, the demands of his work, into the safe, protective, replenishing place that he's come to love. So one sister, Mary, pulls up a chair and sits with Jesus. I can just imagine her hearing the stories, asking questions about all that Jesus has seen and done as he's traveled and as he's done his ministry. Meanwhile, the other sister, Martha, runs into the kitchen. And Martha is in there frantically trying to meet the physical needs of Jesus by getting food and drink. Mary's in the great room catching up with Jesus. Martha's in the kitchen working on dinner. Seems like a natural division of labor. Seems like all is good with the world, but it's not because Martha is ticked and she completely loses it. She doesn't subtly motion to her sister to join her in the kitchen. She doesn't slam the pots and pans around passive aggressively indicating her displeasure. No, she goes right to Jesus. Remember what she said? Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I think when we read this passage, we read it in this sort of happy-go-lucky, all-things-are-good sort of filter. But I imagine Martha bursting into the room with a big wooden spoon in her hand and getting right in the face of Jesus. And we read it with this very pleasant tone, but I hear her saying, you tell her to help me. Don't you care? Listen to me, O Savior of the world who came out of heaven to rescue all of us. Don't you see that my good-for-nothing sister, I added that good-for-nothing part, that good, my good-for-nothing sister will not help me? If I were Jesus, and we should be very grateful that I am not, I would have had some very specific things to say to Martha. But Jesus, who is heavy on the grace, says in only a way that he can, Martha, Martha. He doesn't flip over any tables. He doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't escalate the situation. He simply says her name twice, Martha, Martha. And then he compassionately, gracefully confronts her on her busyness by saying, you are worried and upset about many things. He recognizes and in one simple sentence illuminates her burden-filled life. He is calling her out in a very compassionate way by saying, your mind is occupied and worried about so many things. You are stressed out, worn out, poured out, stressed out. You're depleted. I came here just to be together and you are making my visit so much more complicated than it needs to be. Maybe I'm reading more into the text than is there, but I don't think it's a stretch to believe that Jesus is saying to Martha, as he is saying to you and I, I come here for relationship. What matters to me is our friendship, our love for each other. 
I've come here for the life-giving relationship that we have. I don't need dinner. I need you. And look how Jesus makes that point in verse 42. But few things are needed, or really only one. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Again, what Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, what matters most to me is our relationship. It's you that matters to me. Mary gets that, and I'm not going to take it away from her. I'm not going to send her into the kitchen to do a bunch of things that don't matter to me because I want her here in relationship with me. And Martha, you need to be in here with us as well because all that you're trying to do and accomplish and the hole in your life that you're trying to fill by the busyness, what you need is in here, and that's to be present with me. So put the spoon down and come sit with us. So this morning, I want to ask you some direct questions. You can raise your hand if you want, or you can remain anonymous, but I want to ask you this morning, how many of you here today know that your life is too busy, that your life is too complex, that you're very far away from the idea of simple? So for those of you that can identify with me and Martha and each other, I'm going to ask you, do you think that an unrushed, one-on-one conversation with Jesus might help you put the spoon down? Do you think Jesus was right when he told Martha to disconnect from the never-ending treadmill of the work and join him for some conversation? Do you think that was right? Let me ask a more revealing question. You don't have to raise your hand or comment in any way. But when you are overwhelmed with life, when you find that the complexities of your life are pushing you down, and you're on the edge of the cliff, spoon in hand, yelling at Jesus. What do you do? How do you find relief? When I look into my own life, I can point to a few very specific and not that distant seasons of total depletion. Pastors are not immune to this. In fact, I would hazard to guess that they're incredibly susceptible to depletion. And when I look into the eyes of the people that are my friends and when I hear the conversations that happen in my office, I see and hear depletion. And when I look at the world around us, I see a near epidemic problem with personal depletion. We're overcomplicated. We're overworked. It's in these moments of depletion where we, like Martha, are most critical, most resentful, most at odds with the people we love in our lives and most susceptible to sin. And I don't believe for one second that I stand here as the only person in this room that can relate to Martha's story. We all react differently to overcomplexity and the depletion in different ways. Some of us, when depleted, and this is me, this is how I respond. I get easily irritated for very little things. I react and I blow up at very small stuff when I'm depleted. I feel horrible about it. I don't like that side of my personality. But when I'm depleted, when I'm emptied out, that's what comes out. I don't like that it causes my family to walk around on eggshells. Some of us withdraw and become passive. Some of us overeat, overdrink, overmedicate, or overspend. Some of us become workaholics. Some of us overcomplicate things. We make 
everything in life more complicated than it needs to be. Some of us escape into movies, music, or even pornography. If you look, it is what is underneath this country's obsession with these things. It has much to do with depletion or exhaustion. People don't have the energy to gain true intimacy in the right way, so they go after it in the wrong way. Some of us, when depleted, overspend our budgets. It's called retail therapy. Some have affairs. Whatever the outward expression of your depletion, it is safe to say that we are not at our best when we are depleted. We allow the man-made complexity of life to overpower the God-designed peace that he desires for each of us. These moments happen when we overcomplicate, when we lose sight of what is singularly most important in our lives, and that is our relationship with Jesus, our Creator and our Savior. Now, we could stop here and have plenty of stuff to think about for the rest of the week. But for most of my life, this is where the story always stops. Just focus on God and all will be better. But it's more difficult than that, isn't it? It's more complex than that. Because if it was as simple as just focusing on God more, less of us would be depleted this morning. So there has to be something more. If you've ever tried to take something that's complex and boil it down to something simple, you know that that is hard to do. It requires way more effort to simplify than it does to complicate. So I want to give us a place to start this morning. To simplify our lives, we need to ask ourselves one question. This is where it begins. It begins with this one question. And while on the surface that question may seem very, very simple, it isn't. It's a very difficult question. And so I want you this morning at some point today to ask yourself this question. Who do I want to be? This is a life-altering, course-correcting, sacrifice-making question. This is not the kind of question that you should ask yourself on an annual basis, but it is a question that we should all ask at some point. Who do I want to be? Not who does my boss want me to be. Not who does my spouse want me to be. Not who do my friends want me to be. Who do I want to be? And this isn't a selfish, self-centered oriented question. This is Who do I want to be in the sense of God's filling me up to be the person that I need to be? I recently sat down for a two-day intensive process called a life plan designed to help me answer this very question of who do I want to be when I grow up? And it was exhausting experience, but it was incredibly rewarding because I realized and what I learned through the process was that who I want to be doesn't always match up with what I do. And I realized, and I'm learning more and more each day, that there are things that are in my life that push me away from the person that God designed me to be. And that I need to learn to cut those things out of my life. But as important as that is, it's equally important to begin to fill my life with the things that replenish me as well, that fill me up. It's called a replenishment cycle. That as as important as shedding the things that are harmful, filling myself up with the things that are beneficial, equally as important. For example, I'm learning that I need an hour or a week or so alone with God and a blank piece of paper to write out my thoughts. I'm learning that time, concentrated time away with my family replenishes me. I'm learning that I need to exercise more, that that replenishes me. You have a replenishment cycle as well. We all do. 
And I bet if we were to spend 30 minutes together, we would be able to create a list of things that are distracting you from being the person that God wants you to be. And we could develop a list of things that would encourage you to be the man or woman that God wants you to be. So the first step is to identify who do I want to be. The second step is to outline those things that are distraction and those things that are encouragement. But there's one more step, and this is where real growth happens. This is where we move from something that we talk about to something that is a habit. Once you've decided who you want to be, who God wants you to be, and you've identified the things that distract or encourage you, the next step, while seemingly simple, can be very, very challenging for some. And that is that you need to reorder your calendar. You see, we calendar what is most important to us in this society and in this culture. Let's say you were to do the exercises that I've just outlined for you and you were to write down, here's who I think God wants me to be. And here are the things that are a distraction and here are the things that help me become that. If you were to list those things, how well do they match up with your actual calendar? If you were to take your calendar and your life that you want to be, that God has designed for you, how would those things correlate together? Are they reflective of the God-given life? You see, we calendar things that are most important to us. Is coming to service on Sunday morning on your calendar. Can't get closer to God if you're not spending time with God. Is spending time in the Bible on your calendar. How about dating your spouse? Maybe for you it's about being a better husband or a better wife. Is dating on your calendar. Maybe it's about being a better dad or mom. Is doing the things your kids like to do on your calendar. You see, we calendar what matters most to us. And these things that you want in your life, these things that you believe God is leading you to be, they're infinitely more important than most of the tasks that live on our calendar. What does your calendar or what is your calendar teaching your children or your families about what is most important to you. We calendar what's important. So if those three things, if we're going to challenge ourselves with those three things, in order to do that, we need to trust that God is who He says He is and He's going to do what He's going to say, what he said He's going to do. If we're going to have the courage to push back on our calendars, if we're going to say no to the overcomplexity of our life and yes to the simple things that truly matter to God, then we need a good reason for that. We need the courage to do that. And so that courage is found in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read it. I want you just to sit back and listen. Allow these words to soak into your heart as I read them. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I will tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? you of little faith. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. And this is where the verse becomes real. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
You see, this passage is saying that we must first quiet our life. That simplifying by seeking first the kingdom of God is what matters. And this passage is saying that if we do that, Jesus, God, is faithful and just to give you the things that you need. He will sustain you because He is infinitely more aware of your needs than you are. He's infinitely more capable of meeting your needs than you are. I'm learning that a big part of my replenishment cycle is to spend time with God. No agendas, just relationship time. No requests, no petitions, no needs, just me and God. It fills me up. It replenishes me. But I'll tell you, it's hard to do. The busyness of my life calls me away from it nearly every day. But this is where simplicity begins. I'm about to turn 43 years old. I've been in ministry for 25 years. And I, to this day, struggle to carve out those 15 minutes on a regular basis with God. So that's your homework. Your homework is to take your calendar out. Decide how does this match up with who God wants me to be. And to find that 15-minute window every day to get alone in a chair with God. I can tell you from my own life, as I struggle daily with overcomplication, that I am at my best when I seek God's kingdom first. I make better decisions I'm a better better dad to my girls. I'm a better husband to my wife. I'm happier, healthier, and more alive. But when I'm not right with God, when I'm operating out of a place of depletion, my life is directionless. It's dark. It's not very pretty to look at. I'm at my best when I simply seek first the kingdom of God. Father, I thank you for this day for the opportunity to start anew each and every day with you. God, give us the courage and the strength to develop this habit of simplicity in our lives, to push back against the culture and the expectations of the world to overcomplicate our lives. Thank you, God, for the simplicity of the gospel, that it is about grace and nothing else. Take us from this place, bring us back together again, and it's your name that we pray. Amen.